So good morning again. My name is Dion. Uh, we are in a new series called Acts Redux. I want to welcome you if you're here in the room or online. It's great to have you. You know, here at St. John right now in this time of year, we are in the heart of short-term mission trip season. Um, just uh, yesterday, we had a team leave for Wyoming. You'll hear more about that later. Um, just last night, we had a team come back from Belize. Anyone back from Belize as of last night? A few of you? Yeah, welcome back. Awesome. So that's our second trip to Belize in just a few weeks. Um, we had a team that went to Joplin, Missouri, not too long ago to finish up some work that we started well back when the a tornado first hit Joplin. Uh, next week, we have a, a group of high school students going to New York City and serving with the Dream Center there in New York. That's going to be pretty awesome. So Pooh Kaufman and, and others are, are going to be on that trip. Um, and uh, man, we just got all kinds of stuff going on in short-term missions right now. But uh, I started thinking ahead to February, because February in this year, I'm going back with the team to Cambodia. And I thought about the first time, I've been thinking about the first time that I went to Cambodia. It was almost six years ago. And uh, it was an incredible trip. We were doing our inaugural trip. We were exploring the country, meeting people trying to find new partners, and it was, uh, it was an amazing trip filled with all kinds of surprises, as mission trips often are. If you've been on one, you know. Um, but one of the biggest surprises actually happened on a boat um, in the Mekong River, right in the middle of the Mekong River, as uh, this group of guys began to tell their story. Now, um, if you're on the live stream right now, you're, in, you're not going to see a picture of this group of guys for reasons that you will understand uh, in just a moment. But we were on this boat with this group of guys, and this group of guys, they were uh, people that we had been traveling around with off and on during our time in Cambodia. But I didn't really know much about them because there was this, there was this language barrier that we couldn't cross. And so this is what I knew. I knew that they were Christians. I knew they were pastors in a neighboring country next to Cambodia. I'll, I won't name the country. Um, and I knew, the only other thing I really knew about them is that at mealtimes, these guys weren't very big, but at mealtimes, they could eat. They were like putting the food away. And the people on our team were just like, what? How are these guys eating so much? They're not that big. They, were just, they just ate so much. And so that's all I knew about them. Uh, so we we're traveling around and we we're just kind of this awkward thing of we're with them and we don't know them and we don't get a chance to talk to them. And then finally, a few days into the trip, near the end actually, um, we, we, uh, our guide took us on this, on this boat ride on the Mekong River And then we finally got to hear their stories through a translator. We heard stories about how they had experienced all kinds of persecution for their faith. We heard stories about how they had been imprisoned because they were furthering Christian activity, and that's illegal in their country. Um, We heard stories about how when they would travel to Cambodia and then leave to go back to, or yeah, go back home, how they, um, they, they were one time, they were one time kept at this border prison. And um, one of the guys talked about how he was, he was left naked, without food for days, in this prison, how he was regularly beaten, and uh, even had his teeth knocked out. The beatings were so severe. All because they were suspected of promoting Christian activity in their home country. And then they shared stories about how their, um, the police would come in more than once, Right at harvest time, their, their people were farmers, and right at harvest time, the police would come in and torch all their fields, leaving them without food, leaving them without income. And uh, they talked about how that happened several times. They talked about how their land had been confiscated, and they were constantly on the move, all because they were Christians. 
And I remember thinking, like, I've been traveling with these guys for days, and the only thing I know about them is they're from another country, they're Christians, they're pastors, and they eat a lot. And it's probably because they were hungry, honestly. And, and, and that's all I knew about them. And then here, in that moment, just everything changed. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Because here I am, I'm also a pastor. These guys are pastors. I'm also a pastor. And I think about the, the struggles I have in my life and the, and the you know, disappointments and the frustrations, and they're just so different. And I don't think in my life, to my knowledge, I've never had that opportunity up until then to sit and look into the eyes of someone who had been persecuted so severely for their faith. Now, I know here in America, it's getting more popular to talk about persecution against Christians. But let's just be really clear on something. We're not being persecuted in America. Not really. See, in America, we're not enduring persecution. We, we're enduring, enduring eye rolls, right? They roll their eyes or, ah, here they go again when we talk about our faith. We're enduring some people who find us annoying or frustrating for no fault of our own. We, we endure that, but we're not actually enduring persecution. Let's be really clear about that. But there are people all over the world today who are. Uh, you can see this map. This is actually a 2015 World Watch list. It looks a little different in 2016, not much. Um, but you can see places in the world where Christians are enduring genuine persecution. These burgundy kind of areas, that's where the persecution is extreme, followed by the mustard areas. Um, that's severe. And then you've got moderate persecution, places like China, Colombia, Mexico, uh, Tanzania, uh, Tunisia, Algeria. And then you've got these uh, places of, of uh, kind of light blue um, persecution. That's sparse persecution, although the situation in Turkey is changing every day. Who knows? Um, there's, there's persecution in those places. Notice what place is not lit up where we live in the United States because we're not experiencing persecution here. Not to the tone of, of, what, of what my friends on that Cambodia trip had experienced. Not to, the, not to the tune of what people in these regions are experiencing. I mean, just horrific persecution for no other reason than the fact that these people are Christian. It's not because they're being annoying or arrogant or oppressing the rights of others. They're just being Christian, and that's not okay there. So in our country, we're experiencing something different than persecution. We're experiencing a climate change, if you will. The climate here is becoming less hospitable to some aspects of our faith conviction, to some, um, some of our Christian values, and that's what we're experiencing here. But, it, but it's not persecution. And yet, I know there are a lot of people talking about this, and for all I know, they could be right. There are many who are predicting that the time is coming when Americans will experience genuine persecution. That this country that was founded on the idea of religious freedom, where so many people came seeking an end to persecution, that there, there are many who believe, and, and again, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but there are many who believe that we're moving closer to a time when Americans will experience persecution like so many of our brothers and sisters around the globe, which of course is really scary, isn't it? I mean, the thought that we would have to endure some of those things. In our history, we've, we've never had to endure that stuff if we we're born in this country. We've never had to go through that. And I think that's what makes us jumpy sometimes. When, when courts make decisions that are not in our favor, or uh, you know, when, when the president or governors you know, do things that seem like an infringement on our, on our rights, or when uh, decisions are made about you know, who you have to bake a cake for and that whole thing, and sometimes it seems so overblown, but I get it because we're afraid. We're afraid that, that this kind of stuff could happen to us. But today I want to ask you just to dig into that fear a little bit and figure out what's, what's really under the surface there. 
See, what is it that scares us most about the idea that persecution could come here, that could meet us here on our soil? What is it exactly? Are we afraid of what would happen to our movement, to 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 churches, to Christianity, if that were to happen? Or are we afraid that the cause of Christ would be somehow dim- diminished? Or are we afraid of what would happen to us personally? Are we afraid of what it would feel like to, to be imprisoned or beaten or have our properties confiscated only because of our faith? So my guess is, is, is that there's probably a mixture of both in a lot of our hearts. And today, here's what I want to do. I want to address both of those fears. I want to talk about persecution. And I want to talk about the effects of persecution and how it doesn't have to be, if if, if it is true that persecution is going to come to our soil someday, and again, I don't know. I'm not making any promises. But if it should happen, I want to talk about how, how God can use even persecution for the benefit of his church and for our good. It's crazy. It doesn't make persecution good. It just makes God that powerful. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're in this series called Acts Redux. And uh, the, the premise of this series is that we may be moving forward in history into a world that looks more like a world that once was back in the book of Acts. And so if we want to learn more about the world we're moving into, it probably makes sense to study the world that once was in the book of Acts. And throughout this series, we're looking at four catalysts, four things that God used to change the world once, back in the book of Acts, and we believe that God can use those things again to change our world today. So week one we talked about, do you remember? Catalyst one last week? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Like three of you remembered, that's so encouraging. Um, we talked about the Holy Spirit, I know you're just shy, it's okay. Uh, so I hope, I hope, I hope this week you've been praying for the Holy Spirit. I know uh, we have in my house, not just for ourselves, but also for our churches, because that was a catalyst that changed everything. This week, the second catalyst is going to feel pretty different. It's the catalyst as we've been talking about persecution. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 5, and we're going to look at the apostles. Now, they used to be called disciples of Jesus. Now they're called apostles because that, that word apostles literally means sent ones. They, these are guys who have been sent to do a job. They're not disciples who are learners or students who are following Jesus around. They've been sent to do a job. And so in Acts chapter 5, we're going to see that they're out doing their job. They're telling people about Jesus. They're witnessing. They're, they're being witnesses of everything that they have seen and heard and experienced. And because of that, just because they're doing their job, they're not trying to make any trouble. They're not stirring it up anywhere. Because they're doing their job, they meet resistance. So we're going to look at it in Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 17. It says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Now, just some framework here. The reason these religious leaders are filled with jealousy is because the apostles are getting so, so popular in their message. And uh, it's a message that these guys, the high priests and his associates, the members of the party of the Sadducees, they don't agree with this message. The message is that Jesus was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. They don't like this message at all. But the apostles, man, every, every time they preach, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who are receiving that as truth, and they're beginning to follow Jesus too. And this is not only like threatening to, you know, their religious stability, but it's making them jealous. And man, jealousy drives people to do some really ugly stuff, as we know. Read on. Uh, So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So they jail them in a public way, in a public place. The point is, everyone can see it. Everyone knows where they got locked up and that they got locked up, which will be important later. 
During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought the apostles out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. So they're in prison, an angel goes, rescues them. No one really knows about it yet, as we're going to see in a minute. But, but I love this phrase, go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. I just have to pause here because this is so important. See, as we talk about persecution, as we talk about the spread of the Christian faith, let's just be really clear about what we're actually talking about. That, that we're not talking about winning converts to our worldview. We're not talking just about spreading the philosophy of Christianity. We're we're not talking about making the world more moral. That's a byproduct of what we're talking about. We're not talking about correcting people's sinful behavior. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, enlarging our territory. That's not what we're talking about. See, I love how the angel puts it. I think this is so clear because this is my mission. And that's the mission of this church. It's not to, you know, advance the cause of Christianity. I mean, you could say that, but, but that's not at the heart of it. The heart of it is this, that we are all about telling people about this new life. See, see that's what has to motivate us. And I think deep down, if you look in your heart, that, that is what motivates you, right? That we're all living this life, and it's not very alive sometimes. It's, it's a life that leads us to, to brokenness and into difficulty and emptiness. And, and sometimes we look at our lives and we're like, man, I've got everything. But why doesn't it feel right? Why isn't it right for me? That's because this life we're living, it's not enough. There is a new life that Jesus came into the world to bring. And I love the angel keeps the apostles focus, focused on this. It's not like, hey, go you know, with your agenda or your platform. No, no, no. It's, it's go and tell people all about this new life. For us, for us, for us, it always must be the same. I'll talk more about that a little bit later. So at daybreak, the, uh, the apostles, after they've been set free from jail, after a few hours sleep, they enter the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. It's just crazy to me that they just are right back at it, right? I mean, they're sprung from jail. For me, I'd be finding a safer place than the temple courts. This is about the most public place you can go, but they're, they're right back there again, even after being jailed. They're teaching the people. Now, when the high priest and his associates arrived, you know, the, the, the apostles are up at daybreak. You know, they're like 6 a.m. guys. These guys are more like, you know, the guy who rolls into work at about 9.30, uh, looking a little hungover, coffee in hand, whatever. I don't know. When they arrive, finally, they call together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the, uh, the elders of Israel. The Sanhedrin is a name for this council that was kind of a, a religious ruling council over the people. So they, they, they assemble the Sanhedrin. Uh, for a trial, and they send to the jail for the apostles. So they're going to bring the apostles out. They're going to stand trial before this whole council. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and they reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So again, that's important to say, hey, there was a miraculous thing that happened here. Public jail, everyone knew where they were. The guards are standing there. The doors are locked. The apostles aren't there. So on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, I'll say, wondering what this might lead to, wondering what this might mean, wondering how to do damage control, because surely this is crazy. This is miraculous. What does all this mean? Again, just point to the power of God when people are being bold, courageous, and faithful. Uh, Then finally, someone came in and said, hey, look, 
The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts. Again, the most public place you could think of. They're standing right there. They're teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Again, you can see how popular the apostles had gotten that uh, they, they wanted to be careful about how they treated them in, the fr- in front of the people. So the apostles were brought in and they were made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders, he said, not to teach in this name, in the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, you get some backstory here about what this persecution is all about. See, it's not just like, hey, we don't believe that's true. We don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. You know, we're we're zealous for our own religion. It's not just that. See, the leaders, they're upset because not only are the apostles getting very popular, but they are making the religious leaders look bad. See, as, as, as hundreds, thousands of people begin to say, wait a minute, we believe Jesus was the Messiah. We believe he was the Son of God. As they start following Jesus, it makes the guys who put Jesus to death, who is this very same high priest, the very same Sanhedrin, it makes them look very, very bad. It makes them look guilty of an innocent man's blood. I'm telling you, a leader in power who then makes his motive to save face, that is a very, very, very dangerous leader. So they say, hey, you know, you're you're making us look bad. You're making us look guilty of this man's blood. Let's see how it continues. So Peter, who's kind of the leader at this point, and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Continuing. He says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Now, now this is how mad these guys are, right? I mean, so, so j- just like... Here are the apostles. They've been jailed. They've been freed. They're back in front of the Sanhedrin. These same people who killed Jesus a few weeks earlier. And, uh, and now Peter, the guy who ran away from Jesus when trouble came the last time, he's standing up there and he's going like, hey. And he's not flagrant. He's not disrespectful. But he's saying, hey, l- let me tell you what it's all about. Jesus Christ, the one whom you killed, God raised him from the dead. And he put him on high and he's ruling over everything. And we are witnesses of this. And we're just talking about what we've seen. And and here's a chance for you to to confess, to repent for killing Jesus, for killing the Messiah, for being wrong about this, and God will forgive you. But of course, the Sanhedrin, they they don't want to hear any of that. They don't want to hear they're wrong. They don't want to hear that that they've done something wrong. They can't even face that. Instead, what do they want to do? They want to put these guys to death, just like they did with Jesus. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all of the people, he stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. He said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers dispersed, and it all came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. See, in other words, Gamaliel really believes, he really believes that this, this is just going to be a thing like all those other things. See, most of us don't realize this, that at the time of Jesus, there were all of these, these people, these revolts that would come up, and some of them would claim to be prophets, and some of them even claimed to be the Messiah. And uh, there would be concern about it and questioning about it, but, but every time when the leader was put to death, probably by some of these guys here, the movement just fizzled. And I believe that in Gamaliel's mind and heart, he fully believes that this is going to be the same. He's like, hey, we, we just don't need to worry about this because the leader's dead. It's only a matter of time before this whole thing fizzles. And yet, I, I believe that God inspired him to say something prophetic against his own will. And here's what he says. He says, therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail, just like all of the others. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, again, I have to pause there because I think it's a powerful truth to be spoken over all of us today. See, if our concern is, okay, what, what happens if the government turns against us? What happens if the courts start ruling against religious freedom in our country? What happens if, uh, if our own police start, you know, enforcing laws against the exercise of our faith? What, 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 what happens if there are more extremists from other religious, you know, backgrounds like, like extreme uh, Islamists and, and such who, who come and, and, and you know, they, they, they bring all kinds of, of, uh, of, of pain and persecution against us? What happens to the movement of Christianity then? Well, Gamaliel answered it. If this is from God, you'll not be able to stop what we're doing, right? I mean, a government, a, a court, enemies, they, they won't be able to stop us because if this is from God, if we're doing God's work, then, then they're only fighting against God himself in good luck winning that fight, right? But, he says, um, if, if this is of human origin it will fail. See, today, I, I just want to challenge you for a second. I want to challenge you to look deeply inside yourself and just ask a question and say, what is this all about for you? You know, why do you come here on weekends? When you say, I'm a Christian, what does that mean for you? Uh, when we assemble as a church and, you know, we give or we serve, like, what is, what is that about for you? See, if it is from God... If what we're doing is truly of God, if we, like, like the apostles, are doing what the angel said, we are, we are living out this new life of Jesus more and more every day, and we are on a mission to help as many people as possible find this new life too. We're telling people about this new life. Again, not about, not about our customs or our traditions or our morality or our sense of what's going wrong with America. We're telling people about the new life of Jesus. That is from God. And if that's what we're about, if that's what this is about for us, then it doesn't matter who comes against us. It cannot fail. We cannot fail because they will only be fighting against God. But, 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 if what we're doing here today is of human origin, and let me just warn you, so easily it can slip into that. If what we're doing today, if what you mean by, by calling yourself a Christian is that, that you know, man, this, this is about your pride, or this becomes about heritage, 
You know, like what your ancestors believed and what, what their practice was. If it becomes about our customs or our traditions, about, about, you know, like how we do this whole thing. If it becomes about self-preservation, if it becomes about preservation of our culture or our morality. See, those things are of human origin. And I just want to caution you that if persecution comes on us, if, if we're about God's work, then man, we've got nothing to worry about. Even though it may be painful, God will prevail because people are fighting against God. But if we let this, if we let our hearts, if we let our church become about other stuff that's of human origin, it will fail. And so today I'm asking you again just to look in your heart and ask yourself the question, what is this about for me? Why am I here? What what do I believe all of this is for? Because the answer to that question is so important. The answer to that question means the difference between persecution coming and the church disappearing in America and persecution coming and the church thriving in America. Because I have to tell you that a lot of those places I showed you on the map where persecution is the most extreme, those are also some of the places where God is doing his most beautiful work. I mean, you wouldn't believe the stories of of how God is moving in those places because, because, because it is a movement from God. See, the answer to that question is so important. And friends, I, I will do my best and I hope you do your best to never let this become stuff of human origin. That the reason we exist and and the reason we come and the reason we live out our lives in the community, the reason we do everything we do is to tell people about the new life of Jesus and nothing else. Now before we move on, um, let me just give you one quick note about Gamaliel, this guy who's saying all this, even in spite of himself. It's kind of a, uh, a bit of a, a Darth Vader, Luke, I am your father moment, actually. Um, see, Gamaliel, he is, he is a religious teacher, and so he's got a bunch of disciples. He has a bunch of students. And one of those disciples, a guy that you might have heard of before, um, he, he later on becomes the chief persecutor of the church. So he does not take his master's advice very well. Uh, he becomes the chief persecutor of the church, fights so hard against the church that he breaks himself on it. He ends up being turned 180 degrees and he becomes the chief advocate of the movement of God. In fact, he becomes the guy who dies for his faith in the face of persecution. So this guy Gamaliel, he he was the teacher of another guy named Paul, which I think you've heard of before. He wrote most of the New Testament. The biggest leader in the the New Testament world spread the gospel uh, more than probably any person in human history. Gamaliel was his teacher. So it's just amazing to me that Gamaliel, saying these words, not really believing much about this movement, was raising up at the time this other guy, Paul, who later would, would, would be a persecutor and then be persecuted and give his life for the spreading of the gospel. So Gamaliel makes this speech. You know, if it's of human origin, it'll fail. If it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. You'll only be fighting against God. Important for us to remember. And his speech persuaded the, the Sanhedrin. So they called the apostles in, and instead of killing them, instead of putting them to death like they did Jesus a few weeks ago, they only had them flogged. Now, I say only, because do you know what a flogging is? Um, the legal definition of a flogging is to be whipped 39 times. Why 39? Because it was kind of believed that 40 might kill you. And it wasn't meant to be a form of execution. It was meant to be a form of punishment. So, you know, 40 is going to kill you, then back it off to 39 and maybe they'll live. And so it was an excruciating beating that they gave these guys for essentially doing nothing wrong. And yet the apostles are flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. 
Watch this though. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Gosh, there's so much there. So these apostles are doing their job and they're met with persecution a few different times here in this small chapter. But notice their response after they are flogged, I mean beaten bloody. Notice their response. They don't stop what they're doing. It doesn't deter them because they're focused on the right thing, right? It, it It doesn't slow them down. They never stop teaching and telling people the good news, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. But notice what else. I love verse 41. Let's go back to it. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Say that again. After being beaten 39 times unjustly, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. How on earth? Rejoicing? Now, maybe the cause of their joy was because they knew that if they, if they died, they'd get to be with Jesus again. Or maybe the cause of their rejoicing was that, that they knew that Jesus had endured for them and, and, and they were just so in honor and so in love of, with Jesus that, that it was no big deal. Or, or maybe it's because the treasure they had found in Jesus was so powerful that, that it didn't matter what people did to him, them in this life. But we get a clue about why they were rejoicing here. It says, they left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy. See, Jesus promises suffering to his followers. It's all over scripture. If you're reading scripture and you're not seeing it, you're you're blind to it, it's all over scripture. Jesus promises that his followers will suffer. The problem is few of us actually expect that it will happen to us. I mean, let's be honest, few of us sitting in this room believe that we should actually expect to suffer for our faith, that our faith should cost us something, that following Jesus should bring pain into our lives. We don't believe that should be true. We we don't believe that's true. And you know, for a while, the apostles, they were the same way. When the guards came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion, right before that, they were like, Jesus, we will follow you anywhere. We will die with you. We'll do whatever. And then the guards show up and they're like, we got to go, Jesus. We got other stuff to do. This is getting real up in here. We're not, we didn't sign up for this, really. We just were, we were just talking. They didn't expect that they would suffer. But but now, now you see the apostles. It's just a few weeks later and they're a different group of guys because the resurrection has happened. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit and now they have a different perspective on all of this. They are now rejoicing because they've been counted worthy. Right, these people who are, who are unworthy and unimpressive and powerless and insignificant, they've now been counted worthy to stand with Jesus to do something significant. I mean, if you want to live a life free of resistance, just live an insignificant life. Just don't try to do anything. Don't try to change the world. Just, just live a selfish life. Living a selfish life will bring you very little resistance in the grand scheme of things. It won't be a good life, but it won't be a life with lots of resistance or persecution. No, I mean, but the moment you start trying to live a significant life, the moment you start to try to do something that matters, see, that's the moment things start to get tough. That's the moment you meet resistance. That's the moment you might even meet persecution. The disciples, the apostles, they understood that now. 
that this resistance, it was a sign that they, they were being brought into something that really, really matters. They're being brought into something that is just, you know, so, so powerful. So they rejoiced because they've been counted worthy. Today, do you rejoice that you've been counted worthy? That although you're sinful and broken like me, Jesus, by his work, has made you his son and his daughter. And he's called you into some life-changing work. Do you rejoice in that? Do you realize how incredible that is? That people of little stature like us should be, should be called to do great things in the name of Jesus. But, but I think the disciples' joy actually goes deeper than that. See, um, if, if, if you think suffering in and of itself is a cause for joy, if you find joy just in suffering, then I gotta tell you, that doesn't make you holy or pious, that actually makes you mentally ill. It makes you a masochist, right? I mean, suffering is no cause for joy, but, but let me explain this to you. The joy that the apostles found in their suffering was not just because they were suffering, like, oh good, we can suffer. And I think this, is, this drives a lot of Christians to do a lot of idiot things. And, and so we, you know, we, we say hateful things or we make trouble for ourselves or, or you know, we, we, we oppress other people and then when we get the blowback from it, we're like, oh look, I'm suffering. See, that's just idiocy. That's not God-honoring. See, the joy they experienced was deeper because the kind of suffering they were enduring, it was because they were doing something that actually matters. They were bringing life to a dying world. See, it's not just suffering that'll bring you joy, but it's suffering for something that truly matters, for suffering for something that the world needs. It's suffering for a cause that is actually working against the forces of darkness that are so prevalent in our world. See, that kind of suffering, when when you're fighting a noble cause, when you're doing something that is good, when you're bringing life to people, that is so worth it. It can fill you with so much joy and meaning and purpose that even in the face of persecution, your joy can't be taken from you. See, again, that's what makes our mission, our true mission, so important. We are not here just to live out our convictions or our beliefs or to protect our freedoms or to preserve our heritage or to to keep our ways for the next generation. If we're fixed on bringing life, new life, to a dying world, as people chosen by Jesus who have no right to be chosen, have no standing, are not impressive people, and yet we've been chosen, we've been counted worthy of being ambassadors for Jesus in his new life, then, no matter what comes against us, God will prevail. And not only that, whatever comes against us, we can have joy. Now, I know this is heavy. I want to give you a second just to uh, maybe move through this and work through this with God. So up on the big screen, there'll be some quotes from Scripture. Some are from wise and godly people of of ages past. And I want you to look at those quotes in those scriptures. And here's what I hope happens as you do that, as you meditate on those. I hope that some of the fear that we feel about what's going on in our country, what's going on against the movement of Christ, I I hope God just starts to take away some of that fear and replace it with a sense of honor, 
of calling, of purpose, and ultimately joy. Let's go ahead and meditate. Please rise. I invite you to pray with me. Join me in this prayer of confession. Father in heaven, we acknowledge before you today that our hearts are often filled with fear. And that fear is often motivated by not only a lack of faith or trust in your power and your goodness, but that fear is often motivated by our, our self-interest our desire to preserve ourselves, our our desire to preserve for ourselves a comfortable life, an easy life. And yet, Father, you've called us to do some hard things, not just to enjoy the new life of Jesus ourselves, but to share it, to tell other people about it. Father, we acknowledge that we've not always been eager to embrace that calling. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us also for hanging on to the old ways of life, the ways that lead to death. Father, for uh, not receiving the invitation into new life, but instead holding on to things that we find comfort in, even though they're empty 
and they cause brokenness and pain in us and in others. Father, forgive us. And Father, as your church, forgive us also for sometimes forgetting why we're here, for taking this this body that you have instituted for a mission and making it about us, making it something of, of men. Father, forgive us and, and lead us to, to be focused on what you've called us to be in that alone. Father, we confess before you that we need you. We need your forgiveness. We need your healing. We need your instruction. We need your renewing of our minds and our hearts and our bodies. We, we need you, Father. And we confess also that our world needs you. So come and have your way in us and also through us. We pray it in Jesus. Amen. And in Jesus Christ, God gave us one who was willing to suffer, who didn't bow to self-interest or self-preservation or to comfort, but he gave his life freely for us so that we could be forgiven. And I'm here to tell you that you're forgiven of all of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, though, God wants to come and stand with you to give you courage to live life, whatever it is that that scares you or intimidates you, to give us courage as his church to unite us together behind his mission to, to help people find this new life. He wants to come and meet with you here through his body and blood in the forms of bread and wine. On the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, and it's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I invite you to be seated. As you're invited by the ushers to come forward, I invite you to come forward and receive the sacrifice of Jesus, the one who endured persecution and suffering and death so that you might have new life. Know that he's standing with you, that he loves you, he's empowering you. And also meditate on these scriptures. Let music minister to you as well. Welcome to the Lord's table.